being here this morning. And man, we serve a good God, amen? That we get to stand this morning and sing about his faithfulness, sing about his goodness, and those truths ring so loud even today in the midst of our uncertainty, in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our difficulties. And so today, we're going to get into the book of Galatians. My wife, now that she's up here, she asked me this week, she said, hey, we've been doing a study that said the study in the book of Galatians for three weeks now, we have not once read from the book of Galatians. So today we make it. Today we make it. We've been kind of laying the groundwork for it, uh, the ingredients of this book, what God has to tell us, what he showed us through his law, what he showed us through Paul and the grace that he revealed to Paul. And so today we see that really come to be. How God just, God just radically changed the mindset of Paul about his relationship to God and how he was to get to God and be in God's good graces and, and enjoy the righteousness that God has for us. And so if you could, you can turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, and I'll, we, we will read together verses 1 through 5, and then we'll see what God has for us today. So Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. We'll read together. If you have a Bible, read along with us. If not, it'll be on the screen for you. And let's read together. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, speak to us through your word. God, we, we just rest in your revealed word, the truths you have for us. God, let us see where we are. Lord, challenge us, convict us. Lord, give us the courage we need to step out into the spaces you would have us to be. Father, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That's right. I expect our kiddos to give me good hearty amens all morning. They're usually really good at that. So Galatians chapter 1. So this morning we get into this study of the book of Galatians and just a little history on the book of Galatians. It's understood that this more than likely was Paul's earliest epistle, his earliest epistle written around 45 AD, that he is writing back to churches that he established that if you read in Acts chapter 13 and 14, we see him visiting this area. Now the church, uh, the, the Galatian church, the Galatian churches are not one single church, but Galatia is a region. Uh, and if we looked at it kind of modern day, it'd be the modern day Turkey uh, area. And so this is Paul writing back to these churches that he and Barnabas established, and he's writing with an intention on doing some things. And I think what's so beautiful about the Bible is that the Bible is the only book that while you read it, it reads you. And it reads right into where we are today. It speaks volumes through the centuries. And what it does is it speaks to this idea of what Paul is writing to. He's writing to believers in defense of true Christianity and to fight for the freedom that we have in Christ. And I think in, in, in so many ways, he is, could very well have written this letter yesterday. 
He could have very well have written this letter yesterday, writing it directly to the church. He's writing to believers here, and this is what we have to understand. So he's writing back to these churches in this area, and what they would do is they would take this epistle and they would pass it along to all the other churches. They would read it out loud to the congregations and get this encouragement, get this instruction that Paul had for them. And so what's going on? Why is Paul writing to these people? Well, this letter is written a little differently than some of his others by the way that he he does the introduction. Uh, Most of his letters, when he writes to these uh, churches, he's writing and he's he's saying, I'm so thankful for you. Uh, I'm praying for you. Uh, Thank you for this for me or what you're doing or this. I remember you in my prayers, all these things. Well, when Paul introduces in this letter, and we'll get into it more next week, is what Paul is writing back to them for is because after he left, people came in after him and began to kind of take away from his credibility as a preacher and of the gospel and of the word and also trying to pull away from the message of the free uh, freedom we have in Christ uh, that these men that you, sometimes you hear them called Judaizers that they were these Jewish uh, Christians coming into the church and they were telling the Christian people who are following Christ that what you are doing you're saying by faith is enough to, uh, to have salvation and righteousness through Christ but they came in with a different message and this message is that you needed to do this you needed to be circumcised you needed to follow the food guidelines you need to follow the old law and so what they began to do is it began to shackle the people where they couldn't live and walk and minister in the freedom that Paul had originally given them. And so Paul is writing back to these churches to communicate something. And the main theme, the reason we named this study Grace to You is because the main theme that Paul wants to communicate is the idea of grace. Because the message that these other men came in preaching to these churches was not a, a message of grace. It was not a message of grace. He wanted to tell them about God's grace because Paul knew Paul knew that the cure for dead religion, Paul knew that the cure for dead religion was grace, and that was God's peace without deserving it and forgiveness without begging for it. But this gift that God had for his people, this message that Paul had brought to them, and that Paul is writing back to them to clear this up, is written to Gentiles needing confidence and understanding in the gospel. And I believe, like I said earlier, I believe it, it, it has a place with us today. Because through this study, we may talk about different denominations and and their view on justification and righteousness and sanctification and those type of things. Because we have to understand that this fight for freedom in Christ through faith alone, by grace alone, is still a fight that we fight today. Even among Christians today, we fight for this freedom that we experience in knowing who Christ is and resting in the righteousness of Jesus and his work on the cross. And so this is not a distant issue for us. This is an issue that many of us, maybe you even deal with today, that you spend every day of your life trying to earn your spot at God's table, that maybe people or churches or religious organizations have told you that you're not good enough, that you're not doing enough good stuff, that there's not enough work that you're accomplishing in your life to get to that point. And Paul has a different message for the people. And he has a different message for us this morning, too. So two things this morning that I want us to kind of focus in on. As Paul is writing this to these people who are being drawn away, as we'll read next week, being drawn away by pressure, persuasion, and deception, Paul does two things as he navigates this space to begin to reiterate the message that he originally gave to them. And the first thing he does is he depends on his calling. The first thing he does is he depends on his calling. Galatians 1.1, he says, Paul, an apostle. 
Paul, an apostle, he starts off by acknowledging his place and his authority to deliver this message. Now, the word apostle means messenger or ambassador of the gospel. He was officially commissioned by Christ. And so up to this point, we know that there are 12 apostles. One of them was Matthias, who took the place of Judas after Judas betrayed Jesus. Uh, many would argue that because Christ himself uh, commissioned Paul, that Paul was the technical 12th apostle. Uh, but Christ himself interacted. We talked about that three weeks ago when we talked about, or two weeks ago, when we talked about when Christ interacted with Paul on the road to Damascus and he radically changed his life. He radically began to mold his mindset about how he thought about God and how sinful man relates to a holy God. You know, and so what we see here is that, you know, what we have to understand about the uh, position of apostle is a very highly regarded position among Christians, among the, the leaders of the church of the way at this time, because there were some standards that had to be met. They had to have walked with Jesus during his miracle, uh, during, his, during his ministry, and they had to have seen the risen Jesus. And so not many people qualify for that. The, the, the office of apostle is not an office available to us today. Even though God still gives us the same uh, mission to spread this message, to go out and be ambassadors, as, as the Bible tells us, as Paul would say later on, he's called us to be ambassadors, but specifically with his apostles, he used them to build up the church. He used them to perform miracles. He used them to, to speak truths and build the gospel and, and, and to see the, the ushering in of the Holy Spirit. God used his apostles, apostles in a special way to build a foundation that we now build off of. We don't add to the foundation. We build off of their foundation. And so Paul is, is telling them, he's telling them that I am Paul, I am apostle, that what I come from, that the confidence that I preach and teach from is not my own. He says it's not from me and it's not from someone else. He says I'm not doing this to appease someone else. I'm not doing this for any kind of accolades. He says I'm not doing this for reception or reactions. He says I have a truth that is a freedom that I experience from Christ firsthand and I want you to know about it. And I want you to be confident in it. You know, I love that Paul is clear about his calling and he's not afraid to associate himself with Jesus. You know, Paul, but Paul isn't only acknowledging his position, but he's also acknowledging his purpose. That in Galatians 1.1, further down, he says, Not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. His faith didn't originate with man or come through man, not manufactured by man or driven by a pursuit of approval. He has a message. He has a calling. He has something specific that God has given to him, a truth that no other, uh, no other way can communicate, that no other way gains and gives the freedom that the, his gospel does, and he's making that very clear, and he's communicating that. And what's so amazing about this and what we have to understand about this moment, as Paul is writing back to these people, remember, we said that Paul was with these people, and you can read about it in Acts 13 and 14. Paul and Barnabas go to these people. They begin preaching the gospel. And, and they build up these churches. But we have to understand what happened while Paul was there. While Paul was in this area of Galatia, he was, after they preached the gospel, he was stoned. He was drugged out of the city. He was treated poorly. You know, and for most of us, if we experienced that, we would be like, see ya, I'm not going back. Right? I'm done with that. I tried. I did my best. And this is how they responded. This is how they treated me. I have this message for them. I'm trying to share with them this hope that I have. A lot of us, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, we'd have been like, I'm gone. See you. We'd have pulled a Jonah and we'd have been gone. And be like, God, just kill them. I don't want anything to do with them. They're yours. But Paul doesn't do that. 
What's amazing about this moment and why we just see such a pure heart for the gospel and for God's people and to see people be saved is in Acts chapter 14, verses 22 through 23, it says that Paul went back. He went back to these people and he said, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith. And saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So not only did they go back to share that message of the gospel with them more, they even began to establish elders and leadership to lead those churches. Paul was invested with these people despite how they had treated them. And how much different do we as Christians act sometimes? Paul had a calling on his life. He was, a, he was an apostle. He was a messenger. He was an ambassador for God. Us as Christians, we have that same calling that even if it's not as apostles, we are called to be ambassadors for Jesus, to spread a message, to go out into the world, to be a light on a hill that is not hidden, that is not put out, that is burning with the passion of Christ in our lives. And, it, and, and I love that for Paul here, that his passion for getting these people the gospel was more than any hard feelings he had toward these people. I mean, honestly, Paul had every reason just to leave them behind. He tried. I'm going to knock the dust off my sandals and I'm gone. But he didn't. He leaned into the lives of these people, went back. And he began sharing the gospel with them again. And what happened? Churches began to form. Groups of Christians began to come and to, and to, to be strengthened and to be led. I love how Paul doesn't allow his history with them affect his calling for them. That Paul was not holding grudges. Church, let me tell you, grudges are the greatest enemy of the gospel. There are people in your life today that maybe you're holding grudges on that are desperately waiting for you to share the gospel with them. Maybe it's a group of people. Maybe it's a certain person that's done something to you or hurt you in some way. Grudges are an enemy of gospel progress. We cannot allow our hard feelings or even mistreatment by other people hinder us from stepping into the ministry and the calling that God has for us. He has not called us to only minister to the people that we like and that we get along with. He's called us to lean into the lives of everyone that everyone deserves this message. And that's why Paul's passion, he gets right into this. And we'll see this more as we move on. He, there is such a sense of urgency. And I forgot to tell you this, but, but the, the title, the subtitle this morning is Leading with Urgency. Because Paul has a sense of urgency about him as he's sharing this message in light of everything that's happening to them. That all this division, all this, uh, all this, this fighting about the doctrines and what they believe and how they believe it. Paul just sees them falling away and he begins begins to preach this message right into their lives, the sense of urgency about it. Paul depended on his calling, and he allowed that calling to motivate him in his ministry and what he did, and that even though he was mistreated by those people, stoned almost to death and drug out of the city, he went back. And you know what's awesome is not only did he go back to the area of Galatia and these churches in Lystra and all these that, he, that, that mistreated him, but then he also went back to Antioch where the people who went and convinced all these people to do these things to him were from. So he even went to his, the main enemy, the main agitators, the main Judaizers, those who were preaching and talking against Paul. He even went to their home place. Grudges are an enemy of gospel progress, and it's an enemy of our calling. Paul depended on his calling to motivate him. Second thing this morning, church, is that Paul clearly and quickly states his intentions. 
Paul clearly and quickly states his intentions. Galatians 1, 3, uh, verse 3 says this. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace was what they had lost focus on. Grace was that, that ingredient of the gospel that had been pushed out and had been replaced with religious rules. Grace had been pushed out and religious requirements were put in its place. Circumcision, obeying the law, uh, you know, all these things had been put in place of the gospel. And the thing that makes Paul so, uh, so adequate to communicate this is that Paul, more than anybody, understood the damage of this false gospel and the power of the gospel of Christ. He understood the power of the gospel of grace through Jesus Christ, and so he wanted to make sure that they understood that. And a lot of times when we talk about the gospel, a lot of times when we talk about the gospel, we think to ourselves, well, isn't the gospel for unbelievers? Isn't that the message that we bring to unbelievers, to people who haven't put their faith in Jesus? And a lot of times in churches, that's, that's kind of the mentality we, we look at it with, right? We think to ourselves, well, I've gotten the gospel. Now I'm going to give the gospel to someone else and, because they need it more than me. But the reality is we have to know this, that Christians need the gospel as much as non-Christians do. We need the gospel as much as non-Christians do. It's not the ABCs of Christianity. The gospel is A to Z, okay? The gospel is not the, the, uh, the diving board. The gospel is the pool. The gospel is how we live, how we move. The gospel is not how we just get to the kingdom. The gospel is how we live in the kingdom. The gospel is everything in our life. And I know you've heard me say this before, but, but we should, as Christians, be preaching the gospel to ourselves constantly because we need to be reminded about the grace element of the gospel because we are sinful people. Because even the, the, the best of us, even the best of us fails. Even the best of us falls. The Bible says in Proverbs, the righteous fall seven times, but they get back up. We get back up, and the way that we get back up is this understanding of this element of the gospel that is grace. This is that element they had lost sight of. This is what they had lost. And I love that he puts these two words together, and he does that through all of his epistles, grace to you and peace. You know, that word grace means undeserved act of kindness. So he's talking about something that's been given. Martin Luther said this. He said, we find no rest for our weary bones unless we cling to the word of grace. Grace is the only place where we can find true peace in our Christian life. Separate from grace, we will never find peace as Christians because grace does something to us in our lives. Grace leads to peace. There is not peace without it. We never find peace separate from grace. You know, in this word peace, you know, see it in, uh, in, in different areas uh, mentioned in this particular way of shalom or this peace that means wholeness that we feel wholeness, that we've got it together, that we're all put together. And that, 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 that feeling of wholeness, that experience of wholeness does not come from our works, but it comes from grace. It comes from experiential grace and what we have seen and known from God himself. John 14, 27, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you? Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus tells his people here that true peace comes from me, and what I give to you is grace, because what the world offers us in the system of the world, the work-based, you do and you earn mentality, will never provide us the peace that God provides for us. 
Because grace removes sin. That's the action. Grace removes sin, and peace quiets our conscience. Grace removes sin. Peace quiets our conscience, which removes our shame, which removes our guilt. Any religious rules, any, any other religious living that we do separate from grace will never strip away our shame and guilt the way that God's grace does. Grace is the act, and peace is the result. And then he continues on, and I love how he immediately gets into the gospel, the meat of the gospel here in verse 3. He says, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us, to deliver us. This word deliver can also be translated as rescue. You know, what Paul is doing right here is he's acknowledging our status, that we're helpless, that we're lost, that there is a, a weight to sin, that sin is vicious, that sin is a vicious enemy that has pulled us away from God, that has created space between us and a holy God, that is drawing us away from obedience, that is drawing us away from peace, that is drawing us away from the ministry and the calling that God has for us. What Paul is helping us do right here is note the weight of sin, that we can't be careless in our recognition of the vicious nature of sin. You know, we always say that, that to really appreciate the good news, we have to acknowledge the bad news. And the bad news is that sin has sentenced us to death. Our sin, our, 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 our choosing to be rebellious at times, our choosing to grab a hold of other things and depend on other things that aren't God has caused division between us and a holy God. And the thing is, if our sins could be removed by our work, what need is Christ? If our sins could be removed by what we did, then what would we need Jesus for? Because what Jesus did is Jesus came in and Jesus did a work that we needed but couldn't accomplish on our own. Jesus came and did something for us that we couldn't. He says he gave himself for our sins to deliver us, that Jesus came to rescue us. And Paul acknowledges later on in, 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 in the Bible uh, about the, the weight of his doing or the weight of his work. Philippians 3.8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He understands that there's no work that I do that gains me anything greater than what I gain by holding on to Christ and what he's done for me. Acts 20, verse 24, he says, But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and my ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Listen, other religious founders came to teach. Jesus came to rescue. There is no other religious leader that came to rescue the way that Jesus Christ came. That he came, obviously he did come to teach us something, but in his actions he taught us. In his love for us he taught us. In his giving of himself, being uh, sacrificed for us. Rescue is what we need, and we have a spiritual inability to accomplish that on our own. And he says that who gave himself, this word gave can also be uh, the, translated as a Substitution. You know, we talked about this a few weeks back when we talked about the atonement, but substitution is why the gospel is revolutionary because in no other religious system has the God of that religious order come down to earth putting on weak flesh, uh, weak broken flesh, and died on behalf of its people. Only Jesus has done that. That's what makes Christianity so much different but also so difficult for people to accept because they, they, they can't fathom in their mind that a 
almighty creator God would accept his people for anything less than the very best that they could do and that they could in some way be good enough for that creator. But what we, we, we believe is that he said that he gave himself for or on behalf of our sins. Jesus paid that penalty. And he didn't just buy us a second chance. He did all we needed but couldn't do on our own. Jesus did everything that we needed to be done. And if Jesus paid for our sins, we can never fall back into condemnation. We can never fall back into the condemnation for our sins because God would be getting two payments for the same sin, and that is unjust. So if Jesus has paid for my sin, by if I have put my faith in Christ and that my sins were nailed to the cross, that it has canceled the debt of sin against me, then for me to ever believe that there's any work that I have to do to pay that back would be God requiring two payments for one sin. And that would be unjust of God, and God is a just God, amen? God is a just God, and the penalty has already been paid. Not only now, but forever. Past, present, and future sins paid for on the cross, Jesus bore it all. That the requirement for those sins were paid for by Jesus. Romans 3.20, he says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. All the law does is let us know where we messed up, and it's a lot. And that by that, there is no justification. There is no being made right before a holy God just by rules. Because we are by nature rebellious. We are by nature, by nature rule breakers, right? Even when we don't want to. Paul would even say that. He says, even when I know the things I want to do, I can't help but do those things that I shouldn't do. He called himself the chief of sinners. There were these things that he obviously was never specific about, but I think it's so that we would never say, well, as long as I'm not doing that thing Paul said, then anything else I do is okay. No, he says it's everything. And we know that Jesus said that, even, that there are things that we even think that cause us to sin, that if we even hate our brother, it's like murder. If we even look on a woman uh, with, with, in temptation, it's lust and adultery. He tells us that we can't make it on our own. That this law is too great and it's too, too, too precise, it's too specific. And that all it does is acknowledge where we fall short, reveal to us the perfect holiness of God, this unattainable place that we'll never get on our own. But Jesus came to rectify that. Jesus came to fix that. And what I love about this is that it's not just our fleeting uh, intentions, but it's God's sovereign plan. That, his, that, that, that he has done for us. And we see that in that last part of Galatians 1, verse 4. He says, according to the will of our God and Father. That all this has been, been done by grace. And it's been done by the will of God. That, it, that any saving, any justifying that has been done isn't by me. But it's by the will of God. It's through the confidence that I can have in his sovereign work in my life, through his calling, through his drawing me in, through his saving, and that it's in that that we have confidence, and that it's in that, that's why God gets the glory forever at the end of these, these verses. In, uh, in verse 5, he says, to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. God gets the glory because God's done all the work. 
God provided the sacrifice. God's provided the foundation. God's provided everything for us. And this is the, 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 the truth that Paul wants these people to understand. Because we love to be our own saviors. And in this religious system, what it teaches when it's a work-based religion where it tells you you do this, 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 and this, what we are essentially doing is being our own saviors by following the rules, by doing all the things that we need to do to accomplish the work that we need to accomplish. And that feeds right into our, our, our nature. We want to be our own saviors because that gives us strength. And that tells us that we're more important than we really are. We find the message of self-salvation attractive, whether it's in religious systems, keep these rules and, and you earn eternal security, or in secular systems that you grab a hold of these things and you'll experience blessings now. You know, this is why we find ourselves, even as churches, you know, and, and there's different denominations that get a bad rap for it, but really in all scopes of religion, it is so easy to fall into a very work-based mindset because it's measurable, right? It makes us more comfortable that if somebody does this or doesn't do this, then, then they're good or they're not good. Or, or they, you know, if they do this but don't do this, then they can sing in the praise team. Or if they do this but don't do this, then they can be an usher. Or they do this or don't do this, then they can be on the leadership team. Now, are there standards and are there expectations? Absolutely. And is this a reason for us to just live and abuse the grace of God? Absolutely not. Because if we look into our lives to abuse the grace of God, then we have completely missed the idea of what his grace actually is for us. But I think one of the greatest illustrations of this work that Jesus has done for us is in John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, verse 1, it says this. It says, now before the feast and the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, listen to this, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Verse 4 and 5 says that Jesus rose from supper, that he laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, he tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. In verse 8, Peter said, and I think this is where we find ourselves falling into religious rules, trying to, you know, justify what we're doing and how we're acting and to, 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 to hold people to this standard of activity. Peter said this. He said, you shall never wash my feet. But Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus is completely exemplifying what grace looks like in this moment. That he takes the towel that was wrapped around him away, more than likely leaving him exposed and naked in this moment, gets down on his knees on the dirty floor and begins to wash their dirty feet for no reason other than because we saw earlier in those verses, he says that he loved those who were his own and that were in the world. God, through Christ, revealed the greatest love that we'll ever experience in, in our lifetime through Jesus. And this is the message that Paul wants them to understand because any other message different than that is not the true gospel. And so what's the most important thing for us? Why does this matter for us this morning? Because Paul understood that the worst thing he could do for these people is be silent. 
Paul understood the worst thing he could do for these people is to be silent and let them continue to think that there are all these things plus Christ that gets them into the good graces of God and that gets them to be uh, righteous and justified before a holy God. True peace is found in the grace of the gospel and not in twisting of that truth to what we add to it. Christ plus anything else is not the saving gospel that Paul preached and has delivered to us. You know, and so for us, as we navigate this space in our life, I pray, I pray that we could understand that the greatest gift God's given us is his grace. And it's within that that there is urgency for us to not only know that for ourselves, but to communicate that to our families and communicate that to the people around us that are waiting for us, waiting for us to share this truth with them. And so what we can see, just three things I want to leave you with this morning and that will be done understanding that Paul didn't hesitate. Listen, church, Paul did not hesitate to acknowledge the faulty nature of this message that they were being drawn towards, and we shouldn't either. We shouldn't either. And so we must live with a sense of urgency in these three things, and then I'll be done. We must have a sense of urgency for the true gospel in our own lives. We have got to acknowledge the gospel, the true gospel, the gospel of grace, and we find that in his word. We find that in the community of believers that we gather in as we read about it, as we talk about it, as we live it out in our day-to-day. We must have a sense of urgency for the true gospel in our, in our lives, and that is a gospel of grace. Also, we must have a sense of urgency when sharing the gospel with our family and friends. Church, for me, the thing that I've understood and even seen is that my children are growing up in a world that is raging for their attention, that is raging for their souls, that is trying to draw them into to lesser things, trying to draw them into filthy things, that is trying to draw them into things that will not offer them true joy and satisfaction, that will not offer them true purpose and conviction in their life. And the greatest ingredient to that, the antidote for that, the work of the enemy, is grace is the grace that God has in the gospel message, and our kids need to hear about it. Our kids need to hear about it. Your spouse needs to hear about it. The people around us need to know about this gospel, the gospel of grace. And then the last thing this morning is that we must have a sense of urgency to expose and to acknowledge any message contrary to that gospel of grace that leads to true peace and wholeness. Listen, we cannot be afraid to disagree with someone lovingly, with an intention to see them understand. You know, I tell people all the time, look, I'm okay with not agreeing on something, but it doesn't mean I can't love you. It doesn't mean I can't come, keep coming back to you. Just like Paul come, came back to these people in this region of Galatia to share this message of grace in the gospel with them. We have to be okay if initially people don't respond to us, but we can't let it go. We have got to acknowledge if something is not right, if the message is not accurate if it is not true peace and wholeness because we'll never be rid of our sin and we'll never be able to walk without shame and guilt without the true gospel that Paul communicates to these people this morning. So can we this morning just bow our head 
and just ask God to just acknowledge within our hearts and souls where it is that we need to be challenged, where it is that he has for us to see the sense of urgency that we need to have about the true gospel, about grace, about what it looks like and what it means in our lives and in ministering to the people around us. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for this morning. God, I just come to you as a, as a sinner. God, I just, we just humble ourselves before you, Lord, and just ask for your forgiveness. God, I just ask for your forgiveness in my own life where I have not navigated with the urgency that Paul displays for these people, the compassion that he has for these people who treated him so poorly and who have so quickly turned away from what he showed them. God, but he continued to pour back in. God, give me that courage. Give us that confidence. God, give us that urgency in our families, in our communities, with the people around us. God, let us see the need for the gospel in our dead and broken world. Lord, a world full of division, God, a world of filth, God, a world of, of, of hurt, God, a world of suffering that desperately needs to know about the hope of the gospel of grace of Jesus Christ. So, God, give us a sense of urgency for this message. We cannot afford to keep it to ourselves, and we cannot afford to let it be seen from the way that we live and speak and move in our life. Father, challenge us, Lord. Give us the courage that we need this morning. Whether young or old this morning, God, give us the courage that we need, what that individual needs this morning to respond appropriately. God, to begin to step out, even in the fear and the uncertainty of what it means to begin to follow you and live for you, God, give us the courage and confidence we need to live in that. Father, we know you're good, and we depend on your faithfulness here today to carry us through. Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' holy name, amen.